Great. Uh, welcome, everybody. Today, we're going to talk about a few things. We're going to talk about the Chinese economy. We are also going to talk about two companies in particular, Target, as well as Davida, Davida Health. We talked about Davida Health a couple episodes ago uh, as it relates to the kind of the state-sanctioned monopoly with air quotes. Um, so we'll talk about those two companies and uh, but first we'll talk about China. So um, before we get started, today is August 18th. Again, it is 7 a.m. here in the east, the east coast of the United States in Hari, uh, 6 a.m. over there, August 18th, 2022. All right, let's get started. Hari, so talk about, talk about, so we have this title, is China about to take out the world economy? Are you talking about it in a good way or a bad way? Um, well, I don't think um, I don't think it's going to be a good thing for the world. Um, you know, I, I think we've been somewhat had somewhat better economic news in the last few weeks, and with gas prices coming down a little bit uh, and and things like that. But there's a bubble that's been growing in China for a long time, um, and Unlike the U.S., China has a huge percentage of its net worth based on real estate. Um, that's one of the interesting things about it is that you know Chinese the Chinese market doesn't trust uh, stocks in general, and so they've put most of their wealth into real estate. Um, and what has happened since 2008, when their S and P 500 equivalent kind of peaked. Um, is most of the money has been going into buying, you know, uh, homes, buying uh, apartments and things like that. That, And so what has happened is it's kind of like the 2008 market here. A lot of money went into buying a place. Um, that money was prepaid. And then the, the builder would take that money, go use it, highly leverage themselves to go build more places. So they were essentially creating more and more, you know, real estate. And then, um, you know, it was essentially creating a Ponzi scheme because you're using this to go pay for something else, right? Um, but what ended up happening is the properties weren't getting completed because when the economy started to fall apart, um, then all of the money that had been loaned out, you know, to pay for this, you know, mortgage, you know, it started unraveling. Um, and then... <clears throat> During the pandemic, they also lowered the the percentage, which actually happened in 2008. They lowered the percentage that you had to prepay uh, on assets in order to get a loan. Um, so now they've had a run on the, the bank where people are trying to pull their money out. And the bank has basically told them they're, you know, the state has said you can't withdraw money. So effectively, you're, you're preventing people from. So we're in the midst of what's kind of like a Great Depression style crash that happened in the 1920s in the U.S. and in 2008. Similar type of thing where the bank doesn't have any money because of uh, it's been loaned out. The loans have gone and largely have been spent and don't have you know anything to show for it. Um, and as a result, there is, you know, there's going to be a huge crash in the Chinese economy. We saw that, I think we talked about it in January about Evergrande, which was like a, uh, 
real estate backed thing. They had like $300 billion in debt and they started missing interest payments. And then it, the story just kind of disappeared from the media uh, talking points. Um, but I think we're going to start seeing this slowly bubble up because this is hitting actual, you know, uh, people in China, you know, the the working class who have, you know, all these loans that are, you know, now uh, they can't pay back, essentially. Mm. I think um, something that's really interesting, I, I, I learned about this this weekend when I was listening to some other podcasts about just this particular issue. And if you step back and think about, like, what is the big deal with the Chinese real estate market? Like, why should you and I care about this at all? Because it's happening somewhere in remote country and perhaps in an adversary country, isn't it? Isn't it a good thing? I think I think if you step back and think about the size of this, it, it kind of blows your mind. Right. The equity market, the U.S. equity market, people think that maybe U.S. equity market, the stock market, it's always talked about. Right. It's always on the news cycle. Everyone's talking about stock market, this, that. And people think that it's the kind of the biggest world's biggest market like the Nasdaq or whatever. Wall Street is like the biggest market when it comes to like the stock market. But the stock market is not, it's actually smaller than the bond market. So bond market is bigger. Right. So there's much more bond, you know, bonds being traded. It's just a bigger, bigger, uh, bigger market. And then there's a market above that, which is the real estate market. It's, I think it's like three times as bigger than the bond market. And then within the, within the real estate market, I think it's about like, I mean, I, I think it's about 300 trillion or something like that. And I'm, I might be wrong on that statistic, but basically it's much bigger than the bond market. I'm talking about it at a global scale. And if you drill down into that real estate market, I think a sixth of that is the Chinese real estate. And so that's huge. I mean, that's huge. Like one sixth of the global pie is in a single geographic location under a single jurisdiction, pretty massive. And what it feels like has happened is, is kind of what you're talking about, Harry, which is that there was a, you know, there was kind of a lax, loose monetary policy when it comes to credit creation, extending credit to folks that might not or should not have be having these credits and and now now the world this is where it gets really interesting the world is raising interest rates the every central bank is raising interest rates and when you do that every credit holder or you know everybody that um, got credit now has to if it's especially if it's like a variable interest rate now you're sort of screwed because yep well, shoot, I got to, I have to, I have to pay more for that loan. And when the entire world is raising interest rate, because of the, the flow of money from one country to another, everybody sort of has to raise interest rate. So you can't be like a loan actor when every central banks are raising interest rate. You can't be the one that's cutting. It's a very dangerous move. But if I, but, I, but China right now has, it has, has done that exactly. And mm -hmm. I think and the reason is because the pain that everyone is feeling in China for the, the amount of loan that they took out and the variable interest rate and now the payment they have to make is too high. Like people are writing, not you know paying their, their payments on the loan. 
And so the central bank of, of China, the People Bank of China, I think they had to they had to go ahead and raise or lower their interest rates so that, um, you know, so that they ease some of this some of this pain. So I think I think that's a pretty fascinating story. I do wonder about the contagion effect. So again, going back to the question, why should you care? Why do you you know why why should us care about this? Yeah, and I I think the 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 thing is is that. Uh, economic crises are all always multifactorial, right? The, the housing crisis that we had in 2008 had multiple pieces. And then you had Lehman Brothers, who was also, you know, you know, doing all these, you know, credit de default swaps and all of this hedging, right? So it wasn't the housing market that crashed alone. It was the banking sector and then that affects you know everything else, right? And it, it didn't just affect the U.S. It affected the entire world because people had uh, bonds in other countries that were you know tied to these you know things, and because they had these complex you know financial instruments that were the credit default swaps, it caused all kinds of problems, right? As U.S. investors, it it's like oh that's happening in China, right? But we have banks those banks have loans out to you know uh people in china who are you know reliably paying that back who may not be able to pay it back um you have businesses like tencent uh announced yesterday for the first time they had negative growth in their uh public you know since they were publicly traded right uh, or maybe their entire history probably um and you know so that kind of tells you like what's going on here as a as a um overall as a market, right? The world is one giant marketplace. And when one thing kind of falls apart, it can take out other things in unexpected ways, right? And, you know, we could spend two weeks just talking about how that could possibly happen. But I, I think it's better for us to start thinking about like, you know, we've, we've got inflation here. That's one, you know, factor, right? China's economy fails. That's, two factors. And then eventually that you have the war in Russia and, you have you know, uh, China is still coming, hasn't come out of, you know, COVID lockdowns. And, you know, so you keep adding these things on top of each other and, you know, it's enough to break the camel's back, right? Eventually. Mm -hmm. um, and, th and that means that we have to be prepared to look for cheap businesses that we would be interested in that may, you know, may not, uh, may get unfairly hit, you know, price drops and things like that. Yeah, uh, but let's also, I'll just add one last thing. Let's also yeah. forget, not forget, almost everything we buy in the U.S. is made in China, right? And so if they're not able to, you know, function as an economy, right, that means that we can't buy goods from them, right? And then that effectively means more, it could mean more inflation for us because we now have to pay more to get the same things because we have to get them elsewhere, right? So, Yeah, I think it'll be interesting to see. I think there's a lot of pain in China, clearly. And then there's a lot of pain in Europe, clearly. Yep. And then, you know, like Japan is another one that's sort of not doing so well. Yep. I mean, all, all this like macro stuff, like, you know, as, as us like investors that we, we, we prefer to not really think about them. We prefer to just look at individual companies, but now what we, what the last two years has taught me is that actually you sort of need to pay attention to some of these things and the way things are going, I feel, um, 
I feel that you know we have to keep an eye out for Europe. I have to. I think we have to keep an eye out for Japan and China. Now, I think uh, these these may be patients that might be admitted to the hospital soon. Yeah, and, not already. And I I would say that it doesn't change how you um, invest as value investors. Like we still have to think about the fundamentals of businesses. We have to still think about you know what is the worth. Uh, relative to the, you know, the, you know, distributable free cash flows that a business has, all of those things still apply, right? But it, it may mean that future pain creates an opportunity for us that we wouldn't otherwise have if we were, if we're not paying attention to it, right? Like for a long time, Alibaba and Tencent and all these stocks were trading cheap, cheaply. And now it's a question of, is the economy healthy enough in China for it to continue to be, you know, good business and i think the answer is yes because you know china will always need alibaba right uh i think they'll always need tencent in you know not as strongly as alibaba right but maybe a lot of these smaller businesses that are still publicly traded could get wiped out right mm -hmm. and you just have to kind of pay attention to that mm -hmm. yeah all right let's move on to the next topic let's talk about let's talk about devita first yeah, so um, I, I just want to make mention that um, someone meant, uh, made a comment on the our last live stream asked us to talk about Davida. So, uh, you know, if you have any comments um, or questions for us, uh, we'd really love to hear from you at info at valueinvestor.org. Um, from there, you can get our checklist, which we've talked about in many other podcasts. Um, but you can also um, ask to join our Slack group where we're, you know, we we talk almost every day about various topics and post, you know, news. Um, so we'd love to hear from you and we'd also really appreciate it if you would like, um, comment if, if we're done with the live stream, comment on this channel on, on this and, uh, subscribe to the podcast. Yeah, please do. Davida was one of the things that was mentioned in the comment section on YouTube. So there yep. we go. The Davida, we talked about Davida, uh, in a couple of podcasts ago, a couple of episodes ago, as kind of a, as an example of how um, of how when when government incentives get into the well functioning market, it obfuscates the true winner. It, it sort of puts people on. It, it sort of picks winners and losers, corporate welfare. We talked about this in the context of the Anti-Inflation Act, Inflation Reduction Act, and the EV and, I mean, by the way, it's hilarious. EV subsidies, $7,500. And then Ford goes ahead and raises the price, 8500 Yeah. <laughs> That's how it always works. You it's, know? it's exactly how it works. So, like, you know. Again, kind of going back to this, right? Going back to the um, going back to the idea of corporate welfare, and one of the examples that we talked about in the previous episode again is, is Davida. Um, as a business, it, it's quite it's quite healthy. It's like very very it's pretty strong. So maybe walk us through what you found, Hari. Well, I think you know in the last year or so, they've the stock price has come down. I think like 30% or something like that, 35%. Um, and, you know, for people who are not familiar with it, because we're not going to go in depth as we would in a, on our normal, like two episode 
uh, podcast, but you know, they, they are a, they run a series of clinics um, that provide uh, dialysis, you know, to uh, patients as an outpatient. And, you know, if you're not familiar with how dialysis works, a patient is usually uh, getting dialyzed two to three times a week. Three times a week really is what um, happens because of their, their kidney function. Um, and for a long time, you know, there, these clinics were kind of just scattered around, right? There was, uh, you know, your local dialysis clinic here and there. And what Davida did was they kind of went in, uh, and they're not the only player in the space, but they kind of bought all of these clinics, put them all under one roof. And then they got um, legislation passed that allowed for a stable, um, you know, protection against, um, you know, if you lost your insurance or something like that, you would still have qualify for Medicare uh, for dialysis. Um, well, so the Supreme Court ruled, I think, recently, I, I don't know exactly when. Um, and one of, I don't know the specifics of the case, you know, or how this actually created a, you know, took out their the, the protection for dialysis. But what is um, in the works now is a separate bill that would actually enshrine that in Medicare protection so that dialysis is still protected. And what this does is it basically gives DaVita, a, you know, a, 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 a very uh, safe, you know, bet that their patients aren't going to, you know, they're, they're, the bottom isn't going to fall out. Right. Um, and for those who don't kind of understand, like dialysis is extremely expensive, right? It's, you know, uh, like $100,000 a year uh, if you were to pay out of pocket for dialysis. So each one of these clinics is generating, you know, millions of dollars um, in revenue. Um, so, you know, so because of the like the uncertainty around the legislation and you know some concerns about that, the price has come down significantly, and it's trading at like as of today, August eighteenth, at about ninety dollars a share. But Davida is not a growing business anymore. They've pretty much hit their revenue of around eleven billion dollars, and they just kind of, you know, they generate that fairly regularly for the last three or four years. Um, but what they have done is they've kind of made, you know, we've talked about this on a couple of podcasts, NVR Homes and Southwest Airlines. These are two businesses that had relatively stable growth, but they generated a ton of free cash flow. And because they were trading cheaply relative to that, you know, DeVita's PE is about 10. Um, or I think it may be actually less than that. Um, they're buying back the shares at a huge, you know, clip. And so what ends up happening is there's very limited downside risk as an investor because <clears throat> they generate a ton of free cash flow. They're able to go buy back their shares and then their earnings per share is actually growing healthily because even though their revenue is not. Um, so what I would tell you all is, um, you know, in, in my opinion, and I'd love to hear what you know you have to say, Becco. Davida is just a fantastic business, right? Like if you were an owner of this business, you would be able to take out all of the cash flow there and go invest in something else because you know that you can't really put it back into Davida into the business itself, right? And the way that this company is returning its money to shareholders is by um, by the, the the share buyback. Yeah, it's um, I'll talk about it in a couple different fronts. Davida 
I think is is employing a very has been employing this very classic strategy of, you know, it's it's a very fragmented market, and they went in there and just bought a whole bunch of supply, and now they have negotiating power, because they have, they control most of the supplies. They have negotiating power with the payers, and they can demand you know X Y Z. They can come to the table from a position of strength. I think that's what they've done. In fact, I know for sure that executives of Davida left. Or um, you know, part of them left and started another company in the radiology space. So it's a, it's a playbook that a lot of people follow, uh, not just in healthcare. And so they've done that pretty masterfully, right? And the, they they now have a company. You know, since the founding, they now have uh, since the founding in 1994. And by the way, I think the I think the company suffered quite a bit actually early on. It wasn't able to scale. It was quite difficult. And then these guys came in. Anyway, since 1994, from what I see, 2020 or 2021, they now have grown the company to be, you know, tremendously, tremendously profitable. And if you just look at the buyback program, so by the way, just to give you some um, some numbers, just a level set. So it's a company company's va- valued at about 10 billion, so 9.8, 9.6 billion, and and it's generating. Um, it's generating 11 billion, okay, and um, and then the cash and then the free cash flow, stock purchase, repurchase 1.6 billion. So they're taking out, uh, let's say it's let's say it's about a one 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 bin. They're, they're taking out at least in the last three at least in the last three years they've been taking out a billion dollars worth of their own stocks with their cash. So you're talking about, you know, one tenth of it going down every every year. That's a pretty fantastic way to return return value to shareholders. And then another thing is dividend payment. They have zero dividend payment. So I wonder how this ratio, right? Zero dividend payment with stock buyback. How I wonder how that's gonna shift with the excise tax that just got passed. Yeah. Um but you know, overall it's a very steady business. You're not gonna be holding this for like a quick 10 bagger or something like that. I think this just hold and they will continue to buy back stocks. It's a great cash generating business. Um, yeah. So I agree with, I agree with your points. Sorry. Yeah. The, the last comment I would make is that, you know, they, they peaked at around 130 during the pandemic um, at the height of the pandemic. And, you know, one, one kind of, issue that has been kind of hitting healthcare for a while now is, um, you know, staffing shortages and things like that. So one of their competitors, Fresenius, I don't know how to uh, say it, um, was, you know, reported that they're going to have a hard time with labor costs and inflation. I think that's some one of the other short term factors that eventually will work itself out with, you know, with DeVita um, that is weighing in on the stock right now, but th- those are the kind of things that, you know, long-term aren't going to, you know, hurt you. And if you're buying back 10, 15% of the stock every year, um, you know, your per share earnings is just going to keep going up. Mm. I do wonder though, I, I now turn my uh, focus to balance sheet just real quick. I do wonder, there is a lot of debt on the company's balance sheet. There's yeah. almost 12 billion worth of debt on the balance sheet. I do wonder, if it, if it was the, the buyback was done through debt, um, I don't know. But um, 
Well, I think they're they are they do have plenty of free cash flow, so I think it should cover that. As far as the debt, I'd be curious to see is it actually um, long term leases or is it you know because they're probably not owning their their clinics, you know are they just leasing land you know as part of that long term debt? Um, because they've had it for a long time at this point, um, you know going back all the way till. Um, a decade, their bill, their debt has been around eight billion. So, I'm I'm not entirely sure if there is a you know what the fluctuation is or if it's just based on. Yeah, I, I actually, capital leases is independent of that. So, um, they have about three billion in capital leases. So, um, you know, I I don't know why they have that heavy debt load and you know what the interest would you know would be on there, but I do think that they have enough cash flow to also cover you know any expenses there mm -hmm. cool all right that's enough of uh, the video let's talk about target yeah um you know i i think um to kind of set the stage as a similar retailer like to target is walmart walmart actually reported pretty good earnings the last uh quarter q2 um despite you know warning that there would be some problems and i think Target just had their quarterly call and they said that their earnings fell about 90%. They were still profitable for the quarter, but um, their operating margin was down to 1% basically uh, during the quarter. And they said largely because they had a, a huge excess of inventory. So during the pandemic, people were buying like, you know, home goods, electronics, things like that. And they, Target just continued to stock up on that. So they missed their inventory, um, like, read on the, uh, you know, because as started people started coming out of pandemic times, they started spending money on services instead, like travel. And then, you know, oil and gas prices went up. <clears throat> and so things kind of shifted in their consumer spending. Um, and so now people are still spending money uh, but they're not spending it on, you know, physical items that they would buy at Target. You know, they're buying it on, you know, spending it on groceries and things like that. So, um, you know, it's, I remember about four or five years ago, Target was in the same uh, boat. People were actually telling, you know, explaining at that time that Target is going to just go away because Amazon is going to just eat its lunch. And, Meanwhile, I would talk to people and they'd say, well, I don't want to go into Target anymore because every time I do, um, I spend too much money. And I'm like, well, that doesn't sound like it's a problem for Target, right? Um, you know, so they started doing their, you know, buy online, pick up at the store kind of stuff. Uh, and everything kind of just, you know, worked out for them, right? Um, they you know, Target did really well. They were trading at like $50 a share. Now it's like 180. I think it was peaked much higher than that. So I think the story here with Target is, can they actually fix their inventory problem? Because I've seen this take out many companies, right? Target's pretty big. I don't think it would hit them at that level, but, you know, they've got to clear out all of this trash, right? That they they can't sell. And then they've got to kind of focus on the things that people are actually looking for now mm. it makes me think about a couple of companies that we talked about in the past the inventory the excess inventory if you do it wrong it could really be a company killer 
And I, yeah. I think it, it doesn't, the company doesn't get killed with one cycle of bad inventory, but I think one bad cycle of bad inventory leads to another cycle of bad inventory. Right. And then it just cascades down from there. Um, it makes me think about, um, what's that company? Francesca. Yep. They had a Francesca. bad inventory, bad inventory. Con consumers didn't really like it. Whoever the buyer is, the merchandiser of Francesca didn't really understand the consumer taste and then yep. had an excess inventory that it didn't really land with consumers. And then from there, excess inventory, now you gotta do a big discount and that's gonna hurt the company. And then next cycle, you're sort of always doing, you know, playing catch up at that point. Well, and, and Francesca's was a great story of a business that actually had no debt. They were debt free for their entire thing, but still declared bankruptcy because they couldn't meet their lease obligations. Um, you know, right before the pandemic, I think they went bankrupt because they were just struggling with just simple cash flow because they had a bunch of inventory that was unsold and discount, 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 and you've still got to buy new stuff and it eventually just ate them alive. So, um, you know, it, it's a, it was a pretty sad story to be honest with you. Cause I thought they were, they were a good uh, business, well disciplined in terms of cash flow and management and all of that stuff. But when the consumer disappears and we always talk about the moat, right? Um, when they're there, they had a team of purchasers that were great that left the company for, you know, better prospects or whatever it was. And then they, they replaced them with people who weren't as capable and it, it just completely destroyed that, you know, mm -hmm. and think about it from the business. Like we talk about the CEO, we always talk about uh, the board and the management, you know, are they properly incentivized, but, the purchasing department, there was no, they, they didn't have a C-suite title, right? Um, and, you know, and when you think about it, it's a, it's kind of an undiagnosed, you know, like problem, right? That you didn't pay attention to that. You could have easily lost your shirt, right? With a company like Francesca's. I don't think Target is in that, you know, I think Target's a very savvy company and they'll, they'll figure it out. Um, but, you know, we should be watching them to see, are they clearing these out, you know, the inventory and, you know, out in the next couple of quarters and has it recovered by Christmas time? Right. I think is what we should be looking at because hmm. I, I, I wouldn't give them more than if they get it wrong for a couple of quarters, I, I, we can forgive that. But if they mess it up for the holiday season, I think it could be big trouble for them. Do you know how, what do you, what is the buying cycle? Is it every, do you know, is it like every quarter? I don't know if you looked into it. I haven't, I haven't read their annual report in a while, but um, typically what the retailers are doing is they'll buy for a Q2, they're buying things in Q1, right? Um, so they're, they're putting in all of their orders and their bids. And it's usually two to three months in advance because of shipping times and, you know, inventory adjustments and things like that. So Q3, I would expect they've already put in all of the orders for that stuff. And if they hadn't noticed this stuff early in Q2, Q3 would be problematic. But I think now that they know it, I think Q4 is when you should start to see, you know, are they ordering the right things on the, you know, on the right cycle? Hmm. And it's interesting. How did um, other companies not have this, like Walmart, for example? So... You know, it's it's an interesting thing because I think 
um, Target wasn't the only business like this. TJ Maxx, who is actually, oddly enough, is the discount retailer who gets yeah. the overstock, right? They got hit pretty hard with the same problem. They were buying a lot of casual clothes when people are now going back to work and, you know, trying to dress up and, you know, refresh their wardrobe. They had the wrong, like, mix of things. Um, but Walmart, I think, succeeded where Target kind of didn't in that Walmart has more of the low end, you know, goods. Um, Walmart was warning about inventory problems, but I think they were able to navigate it a little bit better because um, they have a stronger control of their supply chain, one. Um, and two, I think because they're, they're, they're targeting a lower end, you know, demographic, you know, the, that population was still buying staples, which is what Walmart is more, you know, uh, known for, right? Um, Target is staples plus additional, like, quote unquote, luxury items. Um, but I, I don't have a great answer for it. Like Home Depot also did fairly well, you know, during this time. And I think because people are, you know, repairing their own houses instead of, you know, uh, spending money on, um, you know, other things. So Home Depot, I think, was able to navigate this better than Target has. Hmm. I wonder, um, I mean, it's, it's a very delicate dance, I feel like, here. Uh, and um, I am obviously not from, I think both you and I are not from this industry, but the inventory management and, and purchasing upfront and making sure that mix is right seems like a very, um, I mean, it's core of the business as a retailer. And I feel right. like it is a very delicate dance. You have to read the consumer. You have to also look at kind of leading indicators. Like, I mean, there's probably a bunch of science that go into it. Yep. Um, well, I, here's, here's one good story. If you're looking for a business that navigated this well is Michael's. Um, so Michael's was a, you know, the arts and craft retailer, um, in 2020, like during the middle of the pandemic, or 21, I should say, 2020, they put in a new CEO. He had a heavy focus on talking to the customer, getting the right inventory mix. And what he heard was almost everybody had a positive history with Michaels, but because they started cutting the quality of their products and started... Um, had the wrong inventory mix, people just stopped going to the store. And then, you know, after putting in the right people in place, everybody start during the pandemic, everybody was at home. They were doing a lot of arts and crafts in their house, got the right mix, and suddenly their sales and free cash flow just started booming. Um, and so, you know, that, like you're saying, that just that getting the right mix of, you know, to get people in the door and make it interesting and want them to shop there, right? Like retail can have a powerful impact on, you know, on people, right? Like they, they have a, if they have a positive, you know, view, like people have a very positive view of Amazon, then they keep shopping at that place, right? And if you have a negative view, then, you know, it, it slowly just goes out of your mind and then you, you, you know, you stop thinking about that store, right? That's eventually how it fails. Yeah. It is, um, I suppose that the takeaway for me from all of this is that when you think about Target, when you think about retail stores, you don't really, at least for me, 
you sort of don't really think about the inventory mix or like what's in the store from a day to day, from a month to month basis. Yep. You just think about it as a brand, right? Oh, I'm going to Target or Walmart. And then yep. I don't, I mean, I don't really know what's in there. I feel like it's sort of commodity anyway. It's just like mix of this, mix of that. It's pro it's all the same stuff. But I think what we're realizing here, at least as an outsider looking into this industry, is that the inventory mix, I mean, the subtle changes that we probably consumers as an individual level may notice or may not, maybe some, some sort of not so consciously notice, but collectively it shows up in numbers. And it's something that I, some, I mean, like Francesca and all these companies, like it's very important to get that right. And yep. um, as investors, I think, um, I don't know, maybe it's, it's the last question to you. Like, how do you even assess that going into it? Going into like when you, look, when you look at Francesca or any of these retailers, how do you assess the quality of inventory control they have in place and they've been doing, they have a good track record of it and all these things? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the best ways to do it, and this is, obviously not a scientific way is to talk to people who shop at those kind of stores or shop it for those kind of things that is sold at that store. So I remember talking to a lot of, because Francesca's targets women, especially the younger demographic, like 15 to like, you know, 35 that, you know, that age group. And when I talked to people in that, what a lot of them said was, I used to love going to that store, but the last few times I went, I didn't find anything. So I, I stopped going there. Right. And, you know, it, I think that that is a very helpful way to like if you're a, somebody who shops at Target, which I shop at Target relatively frequently. Um, I don't notice that because I go there and I get specific things. Right. But if you go and talk to people who are uh, like you should never rely on your own you know, sense of what something is, you should go and talk to as many people as you can. And if you start hearing that same kind of, well, you know, I used to go there for everything, but now I started shopping at store X or I started buying things there or I started, what you'll find is, you know, because I made the mistake or I, and I know a lot of people were like, well, everything's moving online. Everybody's buying on Amazon. So all these brick and mortar stores are just going to die. Right. And then you, you actually look at the data and what you see is something completely different. Right. Which is those stores are actually doing just fine. Um, and most people that you talk to would you know, say, I went to Target and I bought a lot of stuff there. So what I would do here is go and start talking to people and saying, if I'm interested in Target, what is your, you know, if you shop there, what do you, you know, what do you see? What do you feel? Like, is it missing a lot of stuff? And, you know, my, the internet is very helpful for this kind of stuff because if you go onto like message boards and Facebook and things like that, you'll see what people, you know, will, will say about stuff. Um, and it, 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 it's not a perfect, you know, example, but it does help, you know, uh, I, I think another good one I'll, I'll leave everyone with was GNC, right? For the longest time, if you needed any sort of health supplement, protein powder, you know, whatever, right? Everybody I knew in early 2000s, they would buy all of that at GNC. And it was because it was the only place that, you know, sold it. They had a large inventory and they had, you know, a lot of variety. Um, and then in 2015, 2016, I was like, well, you know, GNC, there's now so many different options for buying nutritional supplements. But if you go into the store, you'll see that their prices were also just higher than everybody else. 
And they were feeding off of a market of just elderly people who didn't know any better and would just walk into GNC to buy stuff. And the stores were empty and nobody I knew <clears throat> actually purchased from them, right? So that like, you know, um, this is Phil Fisher who wrote the book, uh, Common Stocks, Uncommon Profits. Um, he called it the scuttlebutt method, right? Which is an old term for like, you know, What's what does the the word the man on the street have to say about something like this? And it's it's yeah. a good indicator, but it's not like the not perfect, you know. For yeah. I, would say, I think that's a great I think that's a great take. I would say that another thing that you can look at um, you can look at the balance sheet too, the build build up an inventory yep. and the asset. So if you look at the balance sheet, you'll see inventory as one of the line items. If you see that spike up, or if you see a history of that being very steady, then mm -hmm. it's pretty, pretty, probably a good sign that inventory management has been, has been pretty good. If you see it like spike up or down, that's when, um, that's when you, you have to look in, you know, scrutinize a little bit more. So I would, I would add that as well. Um, great. Uh, I had, I thought I had one more thing, but I, I lost it. Um, but I think this is, this was good. Good conversation. Uh, I see that some of you are watching right now. If you guys, um, want us to talk about a particular company again just leave us uh leave a leave a comment on on youtube or wherever you watch this and um yeah or any any topic that we want that you want to discuss i think what we're going to do probably going forward is probably two parts right it's like um you know part one talk about kind of the macro news related and then part two we're going to talk more specifically about companies like we did today so all right Thanks, everybody, for joining. And uh, I'll see you guys next week. All right. Thanks.